private journey with Jesus is just the beginning. Connecting with others intensifies our light. Together we bring hope to the world. Christ, you, me, Cola. Tēnā tātou katoa. He mihi tēnei ki tō tātou mātoe te rangi. Tēnā koe. Kia rātou te moinga roa. Moi mai, moi mai, moi mai. Rātou ki a rātou, tātou ki a tātou. Ki te hāhi e tūmai nei. Tēnā koe. Ki ngā kairahi o tēnei hāhi. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou. Kia koutou ngā teina me ngā tuakana, tēnā koutou katoa. Ko wai e tū ake nei, ko māwao te maunga, ko wairoa te awa, ko pitirehe mahahi tōku iwi, ko Craig rawa ko Michaela oku mātua, ko rawa etahi o ngā minita o tēnei hāhi, ko Dan tōku hoa rangatira, ko Melissa ahau. Nō reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. Well, kia ora and good morning, everyone. My name is uh, Melissa and I hail from Tauranga. Mawao is my mountain. The Wairo River is my awa, my, my river. Uh, Craig and Michaela are my parents. Dan is my husband, or in Māori, which is Huarangatira, he's my special friend. And, um, and Bethlehem Baptist Church is my iwi, it's my tūranga waiwai, and, and it's so great to be back here this morning, especially as we acknowledge God's presence here with us this morning. And hasn't it, hasn't it been so wonderful seeing um, baptisms and, and also such a special communion service? I was saying in the first service, I was really concerned when they were spilling oil everywhere. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm just going to be like rolling around on stage. Um, but thankfully, I'm generally fixated to one place anyway, so... It's been a wee while since I've spoken here at uh, BBC, so I'll give you a wee update on what Dan and I have been up to over the last wee while. So last year, in about July, we took off for six months, 184 days, because if we were any longer, uh, the government charged us interest on our student loans. So we were gone exactly 184 days, and we went up through Singapore, Vietnam, into India, through Nepal, uh, down into Europe, and then we walked to the Camino, which is what Dad's walking at the moment, God be with him, and then we went down to Morocco and then back up through Europe for Christmas and New Year, so we just had the most amazing time, uh, and it was really cool for Dan and I as well as, a, um, as husband and wife. So uh, we then returned back to Tauranga in January, and we've now bucked the trend, and we've moved up to Auckland instead of moving down. All of our traffic woes are still the same though. I drove back down on, on the bus actually, and I was driving into Bethlehem and it was just shocking. And I was like, oh, we've all got this in common. So um, Dan's working in law up in Auckland and I'm studying theology at Kerry Baptist College and I'm just having the most amazing time. Uh, the lecturers are really, really amazing, full of wisdom and knowledge. And I kind of liken my time there to kind of drinking from a fire hose. You know, there's just all this learning coming at you and, uh, and you're trying to absorb it all. It's, it's really fantastic. 
but I was reminded a few weeks ago of the first time I spoke at BBC, and I was partway through my talk, and I looked across to my right, and there was a guy about five rows back, and he was like this. And I was just like, oh, jeepers, Mel, this is going really well. But since being at Kerry, I now know what he was doing. He was drinking from the fire hose. He was just <laughs> absorbing all the learning and wisdom I was imparting on stage. And next time, I will bring a water gun, and he'll get the full measure of that water hose. <laughs> right, well, this morning, we're going to be carrying on in the series on Philippians. And we're going to be picking up chapters 1, verses 12 to 18. And we're going to be looking at Paul's kingdom perspective, the way which Paul viewed the world through the circumstances that he was in. And as we've heard from Colin over the last couple of weeks, the Apostle Paul was writing this letter to the Church of Philippi from prison in Rome. So Paul was in prison, and he was writing this letter to encourage the church and also to instruct this community of believers on how they're to live together, how they're to live in collaboration with one another, hence collab. But the interesting thing about these ancient letters is that they followed a particular format, a particular structure, and Paul's is is not exempt from this. So a a letter, an ancient letter, would open with with an opening greeting. And then it would move through to a time of thanksgiving. And then you'd get to the main body, so the main crux of what it is that the the author is wanting to say. And then you move into uh, the final salutations and final remarks. And our emails and letters today follow a really similar format, don't they? So I might write an email to Eric and I'll say, Hi, Eric. Great to hear from you the other day. Sounds like you and Karen had a great trip away. That would be the opening greeting. Thank you for the chocolate that you posted, Dan and I. It's proven to be a really great study companion. That would be Thanksgiving, and in this case, a hint. Yeah. (laughs) And then at that point, you get into uh, the meat of what you're really wanting to say. I'm actually writing to let you know, or I'm just emailing you to tell you. We get into the brunt of the message. And this is the point of the letter that we find ourselves in this morning. It's like the pleasantries are over and the letter is about to tell the church the brunt of what Paul is wanting them to hear. It's the crux of the message. He's getting down to business. And this is his opening statement. He says, now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, There's something Paul wants them to know. And you get the sense of the church leaning forward as this letter was being read out, thinking, what, Paul? What do you want us to know? Because the Philippians, they would have known what they wanted to hear from Paul. As Collins mentioned over the last few weeks, this church cared deeply for Paul. They sent one of their own members to go and help him out financially while he was in prison. They were praying for him. They were deeply invested in his well-being, knowing that Paul Paul was somewhere in a Roman prison cell. And it would be like one of our missionaries from BBC that we financially support, or we pray for, and, and we visit, and we find out they're going through an intense period of hardship in their ministry. And then we get word that they've been thrown into prison. And so we're praying for them, and we're sending them help and financial assistance. And then finally, Caleb gets up on a Sunday morning and he goes, guys, we've heard from the Andertons, or we've heard from Luke Friot, or whoever. 
And we're all leaning forward in our seats going, how are they doing? Are they going to get out? And what is it that they want us to know? And this is what Paul says to the church. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and do all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. And you get the sense of the church of Philippi now sitting back going, wow, wow. We were expecting to hear how Paul was doing, how his health was, whether there was any progress on him getting out, but instead, he gives us a report on how the gospel was doing. He tells us that the soldiers keeping him are now coming to Christ, and even outside of the prison, people are hearing and talking about the gospel. And then he's telling us that because of his chains, other Christians are becoming far more confident in their own faith and they're proclaiming the gospel all more confidently as well. Yes, Paul is saying, I am in prison, but the kingdom of God is advancing. You're starting to get a sense of Paul's perspective here. Instead of telling the church how he was, He gave them an account on how the gospel was because Paul and Christ are so intertwined that you cannot get an account of Paul without an account of the gospel. Paul was so enamored with the gospel, so certain that it was the good news for a fallen and a broken world that despite being in a Roman jail cell, he could look out and he could see Christ everywhere. Yeah? When Dan and I returned from overseas earlier this year, we had to purchase a new car. And so we did a bit of research, we had a particular budget, and we were looking into what kind of car would be, would be a good one to buy. And uh, eventually, after a bit of research, we settled on a Toyota Avensis. And we went on to Trade Me, and we found one in Wellington that we thought would be good, and we made the purchase, but we couldn't go and pick it up for a couple of weeks. But the minute that we clicked that Buy Now button, we, the minute that we were invested in it, we started seeing Toyota Avensis everywhere. Yeah, you guys will know this with your own cars, right? You're cruising through town and every second car you see is a Toyota Avensis. It got to the point where I had to say, Dan, I, get, I know what our car looks like, you don't need to keep pointing it out. But it's a bit like this with Paul. The moment he encountered Christ on the road to Damascus, it was like his eyes had been open to the kingdom of God, and he could see Christ everywhere. Dan and I were were no longer fixated on um, Holdens or Fords or Mazdas or any other kind of make. Our focus was on Toyota Avensis. And like Paul, he was no longer fixated on earthly things or on his own level of comfort. His fixation was seeing the kingdom of God advancing, seeing the gospel spread, knowing that it was the good news for this world. Nothing mattered more to Paul than the kingdom of God being advanced. And this would have been immensely encouraging to the church of Philippi, if not at least a little bit surprising to them. But our insight into Paul's kingdom perspective doesn't stop here. 
Because he goes on, not only is he in prison, but there's more challenges brewing for Paul. So let's see what he has to say. It is true, he says, that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Now, it takes a little bit of digging for us to get a handle on what what's going on here. And you guys are the second service, so you've already had your two cups of coffee. Um, but once we get a, an idea of what's happening here, the reward's great. So let's have a, have a quick look through what Paul is saying. So Paul in this passage has mentioned two groups of people. The first group are preaching out of goodwill, out of love, sincerely, and knowing that Christ, um, sorry, Paul has been put there in prison for the defense of the gospel. And then he describes this other group, and they're preaching out of envy and rivalry and selfish ambition and not sincerely. And so we get an idea of these two groups that Paul is describing, and one we're instantly not big fans of, are we? We don't like to hear that, the, that there's preaching going on that's being done out of a spirit of selfish ambition or envy and rivalry. It makes us feel uncomfortable. But if these are the points of difference between the two groups, what then is it that Paul says that these two groups actually have in common? Let's take a look. The thing they have in common is that they preach Christ, preach Christ, Christ is preached. So what is not of any concern to Paul here is that Christ's message or the message of the gospel is being wrongfully preached. And this is really important for us to understand. He's not concerned that either of these groups are misrepresenting Jesus or teaching a false gospel or leading people astray. And we know from Paul's letter to the Galatians that Paul is vehemently opposed to a false gospel being taught. He says here in his letter to the Galatians, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. These are heavy words from Paul, clearly expressing his opposition to those who are not preaching Christ and the gospel in a truthful and sound way. So we know that Paul here is not concerned about the gospel not being preached well, which leads us to what the real issue for Paul is. These guys are stirring up trouble for Paul while he is in chains. The issue here for Paul is a personal one. These guys are jealous of Paul and his ministry, and they've taken it upon themselves to view Paul in a spirit of competition. They're trying to discredit Paul's ministry while they're out there building up their own. They're out to undermine Paul in a selfish, competitive way for the sake of themselves. Perhaps some of them were even coaxing some of Paul's followers, saying, you, you follow Paul? Well, he's in prison, isn't he? 
That doesn't say a lot about his leadership. Come follow me. So for Paul, it's one thing to be stuck in a Roman prison, right? But it's another thing entirely to have your companions in Christ, your own brothers and sisters, undermining you as a person while you're in there, kicking you while you're down, yeah? But once again, even amidst these physical challenges and now challenges from from fellow Christians against his ministry, his response remains to be one of the kingdom. Paul can ask himself, is Christ being preached? Yes. Is the kingdom being advanced? Yes. Then not only can I say, what does it matter? But I can even rejoice because Christ, the very center of who I am, is being preached. The kingdom is being advanced and I'm a part of that and I can see Christ working everywhere, even in and through the circumstances that I find myself in. This kingdom-oriented perspective would have been immensely challenging for the Church of Philippi, as, as it is for us today. Because what Paul was demonstrating was a stepping back and then a stepping up in the way that we view things. Yeah, And it calls the church to a real place of maturity, doesn't it? A bigger, yet far more focused way of viewing things. But Paul could do this because he was so enraptured in the person of Jesus Christ. His worldview was oriented in such a way that he could see Christ working everywhere and he could get on board with the advancement of the kingdom. It's a very hope-filled perspective. It's a very kingdom-oriented perspective to have. And it's one that's gifted to us as a church community and as individuals. It's incredibly exciting. You get a sense of Paul's excitement here. But what happens, you ask, if you don't have that perspective? What happens if you've lost that perspective? What happens if you did have it, but, but you no longer have it? Or, or what happens if you never had it in the first place? This sort of clouded vision. If there's one thing that I can assure you of this morning, it's that you're not alone in that. This clouded vision sometimes is, it's a shared human experience. And so we're going to spend the last portion of this morning looking at um, two things that I believe significantly impact our kingdom perspective. And there's probably a number of things, but these two I think are massive ones. So the first thing this morning that I believe um, that I believe affects our kingdom perspective is that our perception of God is skewed. This was uh, Dan and I walking the Annapurna circuit and the Mardi Hamal track last year in Nepal. So uh, the hike I think was for about 
22 days in total, and the highest altitude we got to was uh, crossing Thoronglā Pass, which is at 5,400 and something metres. So if anybody's ever hiked at altitude, you know it's uh, the feeling like you've smoked a packet of cigarettes every day since the age of two. You sort of, it's like a real lung battle, and because you know your oxygen's not getting to your bloodstream, it's a real limb battle. And um, we were <laughs> watching some GoPro footage that we took of it, uh, a couple of months ago, and I was like, oh, Dan, um, you've hit the slow-mo button. And he was like, no, no, <laughs> we were actually walking like this. It was just, yeah, it's quite humbling, actually, walking at altitude. But I was really, really excited about this time, because if there's one place um, for me, there's actually two places, but this is one of them, where heaven meets earth, it's on top of a mountain. And we've all got those places, don't we, that's like a thin space. And for me, it's sitting on top of a mountain with a view and blue skies, and it's just amazing. So I was uh, really looking forward to this period of time in Nepal. And I also was really anticipating a time of uh, refreshment and renewal. We'd had a big few years back here, um, a number of things happening in our family, we'd had a number of deaths, um, and it was just a really challenging time for, for me personally, and I was really uh, banking on this time to be a, a real refreshment and rejuvenation. And um, so I had subconsciously banked that in my mind, that this time in Nepal was where I was going to be refreshed. Well, in order for us to uh, time walking the Camino before winter, we had to walk through Nepal at the tail end of the monsoon season. So the lower regions were very wet and very muddy and very humid, and we were sort of slipping and sliding down hills. And then um, I was at the same time flicking leeches off my boots and leeches off my walking poles, and at one point leeches from under my armpits. And um, to top it all off, I was really sick with the flu. And if you've walked altitude with the flu, you'll know how tough that is for breathing. Um, and my, all my sinuses were absolutely cracked with blood. Uh, I was blowing rocks of blood. Um, it was a really amazing hike, by the way. I totally recommend it. If you're thinking about doing it, come and chat to me. It was very good. Um, but the, I think the hardest part about the first 11 days, and I know I would have been able to handle all of that, um, had there been views. We were just completely clouded in. And, and I remember one day, um, I think it was about the 11th day, and we were taking the high route because we just were like, maybe, maybe we'll get a glimpse of the Annapurnas. And um, we're slogging up this hill, and it was raining, and I just stopped, and I just said, why, God, why do you keep making life hard? You see, I'd wrongly banked a lot on this time, but I was also, and in that moment, realized, operating from this subconscious perspective, that God was out to make life hard. And it may seem trivial now, but instead of mountains just being a challenge and weather systems just working out their natural state, I believe that instead of God walking up those mountains with me, he was throwing leeches and ro rocks and mud at me. Yeah. So you can imagine what happens with this kind of perspective of God, and I like to call it the of course mentality. Well, of course it's raining. 
Well, of course there's leeches. Well, of course. When we believe God is out to make life hard, we become cynical and we're just simply anticipating the next bad thing to happen, aren't we? What about this one? Maybe your perception of God is that he's an angry God. And when you read your Bible, it's in an angry voice speaking out at you. And the result is that everything is fear-driven. There's no freedom and joy and playfulness in your walk with God. God is scary and someone that you must always set out not to upset. Well, how about this one? Your perception of God is that he's disappointed in you. And you feel like you're never quite enough. You're never doing enough. And he's disappointed in that. And the result can be that we become quite anxious and we're always striving, striving, striving to do more, to please the one who's already well pleased. Yeah. You see, if our perception of God is off, then our perspective is skewed also. Paul wouldn't be able to rejoice from his prison cell if he believed God was angry at him or if he believed God was disappointed in him. So if Paul had this amazing kingdom perspective, then what was his perception of God? Well, his letter to the Ephesians gives this away. He says here, how blessed is God and what a blessing he is. He's the father of our master, Jesus Christ, and takes us to the high places of blessing in him. Long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind, had settled on us as the focus of his love, to be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. What pleasure he took in planning this. He wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift giving by the hand of his beloved son. Because of the sacrifice of the Messiah, his blood poured out on the altar of the cross. We are a free people, free of penalties and punishments chalked up by all our misdeeds, and not just barely free either, abundantly free. And he goes on. How could Paul maintain this demeanor and perspective? It's because he had this perception of God. He knew that in here. And if you're here this morning and, and your perception of God is off, can I encourage you to surround yourself with people who are going to point you toward the truth, point you toward a God that loves you and cherishes you and who gave you joyful and abundant freedom. Take the opportunity to pray with people this morning. And preferably do that before you go hiking in Nepal through the monsoon season. <laughs> it's a good time. Well, the last thing this morning that um, I believe can cloud our kingdom perspective is this. It's just hard to see right now. Maybe we know that we are known and loved by God but it's just that things are a little tough right now. Perhaps like Paul, you've got um, people stirring up trouble for you, and it's really hard to get some perspective around that. Or maybe it's a, a breakdown in your marriage, or illness in your family, or illness of yourself. 
Maybe you're getting bullied at school, or you've got a struggling business, you're struggling to make payroll, or you're finding university hard, or you're trying to have kids and you can't have kids, or you've got kids and you're worrying about the kids. There's so many external circumstances in life that can play a really heavy hand on our kingdom perspective, can't they? And it's not that our perception of God is warped, it's just that we're really struggling to see what God is doing right now. What Paul's letter doesn't give us this morning is an insight into the journey Paul may have gone through to getting to that point where he can say he can rejoice. The journey he goes on to to being able to pin down a letter to the Philippians saying, yep, all this stuff has gone on, but I can see the kingdom advancing and I'm rejoicing as a result of that. But there is one man in the Bible who gives us an incredible insight into Uh, immense periods of grief, and that's David. And if you look through the book of Psalms, it's often surprising how honest and raw David gets in his cries and groanings to God as a result of his circumstances. So let's take a look at some of the starting sentences of some of the Psalms that David has written. The first one, answer me when I call, O God of my right. You gave me room when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Give heed to my sighing. Listen to the sound of my cry. The next one, why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? David was lamenting. He was deeply crying out to God through his pain and circumstances. These were deep cries from within. But what happens here if we take a look at how each of these psalms end? David says, I will lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, O Lord, make me lie down in safety. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for your joy, for you bless the righteous, O Lord. What about the last one? But I trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. What started as a deep groaning from David has ended in a song of praise. And sometimes, like David, our perspective can go from a point of of um, cloudedness and can be transformed by God to a point where we can praise him, yeah? But David didn't ignore that shadow place at the beginning of having no perspective initially. He didn't think, man, I'm struggling, but oh, I've got to rejoice. No, he didn't do that. It was a journey that God led him on and you can't expect to skip through all that happens in between. That's where God is transforming us. It's formational. And the point is, is that God is in the business of transforming lives, just as he is about transforming our perspectives. So if you're in that space this morning and you just, you can't see where God is right now, please be encouraged that there's great hope. Like David, as we lean into Christ, whatever we're going through can be put before him and the the giver of all good things can slowly transform our perspective. 
Paul knew God was a God who had good news for a fallen and broken world. He, he knew that through Christ there was so much hope and life and freedom. And so through that knowledge, he could see Christ working everywhere. And it's a very hopeful and spirit-filled perspective to have. As I invite the worship team back out this morning, I thought, um, I thought it was only appropriate that I finish on this story of um, a man in our church who had a kingdom perspective to boot. I was working at church uh, last year just briefly and Jim Hearn came bounding into the office. And in the midst of his cancer, he had written an article in the church magazine, the Connect magazine, and, and he was on the cover of it. And this article was about uh, death and dying and his cancer, but also the hope in Christ through that. And he comes up to the office and he goes, Melissa, I need 10 copies of that Connect magazine. And I said to him, what, Jim, are you planning on framing, framing them and putting them around your wall? And he said, no, no. There's a bunch of people around my retirement village that, that need to hear this message of hope, that even through death, there's life. And so I'm going to hand them out to them. And I just thought, man, if there's one man that I knew who saw Jesus working in and through his circumstances, it was Jim. He had a kingdom perspective like no other, was so enamored with Jesus Christ. He knew he would be united with him again, therefore there was great hope. And even in the midst of his cancer, he wanted the gospel to be advanced and he wanted everyone to know that. And that is exactly what having a kingdom perspective looks like. Why don't we stand and pray this morning? God, we thank you that you have opened our eyes to a way of seeing, of seeing your world in its beauty and abundance, and that even when there's pain, we can still see you working. Father, I thank you that you are in the business of transformation, and so I pray for all of us this week that as we live our lives, you would open our eyes further to, to firstly knowing who you are, and that is a good and gracious God but also to seeing you work in and through our circumstances and in our world around us. And Father, we thank you for Jim, who set the most amazing example of what it means to have a kingdom perspective, and we can all take great encouragement in that. I pray you be with us all this week. Amen.